Morning. I invite you to take a seat. Uh, my name is Kevin, if we haven't yet met. Uh, would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16? It's Matthew chapter 16. We've been working through the gospel according to Matthew for a while. Uh, last week, or I guess two weeks ago, uh, because of the snow, Pastor Derwin cared for us by leading us through the account of Jesus' feeding of the 4,000. In this story, Jesus' compassion moved him to make sure that the people, all that crowd of people, did not go hungry. Through the steps of trust of his followers, he fed 4,000 families until they were satisfied, and there were seven baskets of leftovers. This morning, we're going to continue to read that account, and you'll be relieved to see that the disciples are going to do what every single one of us seems to do every time we pack up our leftovers. We put them nicely into containers and leave them at the restaurant table. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start at Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Um, and in honor of God's word this morning, if you are able, would you stand with me as we read? beginning at verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky, or the heavens are red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the, the heavens are red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the heavens but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they discussed it among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. <laughs> Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's pray. Uh, Father, would you teach us what this means? Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your profound and abundant, overflowing love for us. Lord, as you show us good news through your word, may we see it, and may you form us and shape us, creating in us, like Matt said, a clean heart. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take a seat. I don't know if you've ever, uh, I think, if you have like a husband or a boyfriend, I think they typically are the culprits of this in the car when it's just kind of quiet and out of the blue, they'll just start talking about something 
that was not part of the conversation. They'd just been having their own thing going on in their head. Uh, just out of the blue, like, where did that come from? What are you thinking about? It almost feels like that's what happens when all the disciples and Jesus get onto the boat. So they're on the boat, and all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about, hey, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <laughs> and the disciples are like, yeast? What do you... And maybe it's then that they realize, we forgot the bread. <laughs> all of that leftover bread, we left it on the beach. I can see it there. This is kind of a funny story, if we remember that. Jesus made all the bread. This is why it's helpful to read the Bible in order, right? Now we just, the bread was right there. But why on earth is this in the Bible? Um, it's certainly not just to normalize forgetting your leftovers. <laughs> What's going on? Well, I think by including this story and the ones before and after it, Matthew is inviting us to pay attention to our response to Jesus. You see, in the two interactions that we read this morning, Matthew is showing us how our response to Jesus reveals a lot about the condition of our heart, and it shows who we really think that Jesus is. Next week, we are going to hear Peter make an extraordinary truth claim about who Jesus is. But before he and the other disciples can say and believe that Jesus is God, they need to have a real heart-to-heart -heart with themselves and with Jesus. And the same is true for us. So I hope that this morning we'll see that a true encounter with the person of Jesus will always reveal something about our, the state of our hearts, and it will show what we really want. We'll start, actually, in the middle of the text by looking at the disciples and how the disciples' response revealed a tendency that really concerned Jesus. And then we'll see, going back, why Jesus thinks that this mirrors the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their response to Jesus. Does that make sense? I don't know about you, um, but if I have a guilty conscience or I feel like I've done something wrong, all of a sudden it's hard to think about anything else. I tend to end up living in a world of low-grade anxiety because maybe something I said and then I'll start to misread every glance, every word, every period in a text message. <laughs> and I'll see that all through a lens of, it's because they're upset at me. It's because they're upset at me. Sometimes uh, I can dismiss this just as overthinking. I'm an overthinker, and that's why I get stressed out about these. But I'd suggest that I'm actually not overthinking, but under-relating. My anxious response is revealing what I actually think about myself and what I think about my relationships and what I really think about the person who I'm interacting with. Now, often, these feelings and these anxieties, they are deeply shaped by past experiences, traumas, attachment issues, and those are legitimate. And they tell us something about what we deep down really believe to be true. It's one thing for me to say that I believe my friends love me truly and unconditionally. But if I'm filled with panic anytime I make a silly remark or fail to remember something important, I wonder if, if deep down I actually really believe that I'm loved. In reality, I'm not so much overthinking things as under-relating. I'm projecting a stereotype, my own perception of reality, onto somebody else, onto another human being. 
and I'm responding not to who they are, but who I believe them to be. And if I'm right, I think this is what's going on here. You see, the disciples are coming from Jesus' miracle of feeding the 4,000, and they seem to think that Jesus' main focus was bread. I think they're on the boat thinking that the point of feeding the 5,000 or the 4,000 was the bread. And that's why they assume that Jesus must be passive-aggressively hinting at the fact that they forgot the bread. And because they think the miracle was about the bread, it probably didn't matter what Jesus said. Anything would have triggered them into believing that Jesus was unsatisfied with the fact that they forgot to bring the bread. The passage uh, doesn't tell us why they forgot the bread. It might have been forgetfulness. It might have been that they felt like they were on the gravy train. <laughs> we're following this man who can turn water into wine. He can walk on water. He can multiply bread until 4,000 or even 5,000 hungry families are full. Who needs to be responsible when you have Jesus? <laughs> whatever, whatever the reason is that they forgot it, in their minds, everything about the last 15 chapters is about the bread or the things that Jesus is providing. When Jesus tells them something that we'll see later is related to his identity, their response reveals that they think Jesus is here to provide bread. So when Jesus hears them muttering about forgetting bread, I imagine that he sighs. Guys, don't you remember how I fed the 5,000 abundantly? Don't you remember the 4,000 from, like, yesterday? <laughs> Availability of bread isn't an issue for me. That, that has never been the issue. The bread, the miracles, the healing, the teaching, it's all been pointing to something so much bigger than that. And I'm worried about you. Because you might spend all of this time with me and miss that greater thing. So when Jesus tells them that they have little faith, I don't think he's suggesting that they don't believe he can make more bread. How could they forget that so quickly? <laughs> I think their lack of faith, their lack of trust, is that they still don't actually deep down believe that Jesus is God come to save them. You've heard of missing the forest for the trees. <laughs> The disciples are in danger of missing the baker for the bread. And Jesus loves them way too much for that. He sees in them the start of what is already alive and well in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus calls this yeast. It's pernicious. It's everywhere. Some of you know a lot of my like, formal training was in the field of biology. And in my undergrad degree, uh, in my thesis, we were, I was, it sounds way cooler than it was, but my project was I was cloning a bunch of bacteria. Um, so in the process of cloning bacteria, you have to grow one specific strain of bacteria. You'd think the problem is getting the bacteria onto the plate. No, it's preventing all of the other bacteria from getting on the plate. So not to freak you out, particularly if you're a germaphobe, but just opening the plate like this and closing it, you're already contaminated with hundreds of little microorganisms. So you have to learn a very specific technique to make sure that you're growing only what you want to grow and nothing else. 
And you don't know that that's happened until like a few days later, <laughs> whether or not you did a good job. Um, some of you, like my great-grandparents were, some of you are bakers, and you've made sourdough bread. How many have you made sourdough? I think the number went up over like the early days of COVID. <laughs> um, you, you can add active yeast to it. Um, I don't know if you know, you can also just make sourdough without adding yeast. You just have to wait a little bit longer for the yeast that's actually naturally in the environment to contaminate it, for lack of a better term, <laughs> to get in. That tiny little microorganism that causes bread to rise and beer to brew, it's everywhere. And once it's in, it's almost impossible to get rid of without throwing out the whole dough. Do you see why Jesus and other biblical authors find yeast to be such a powerful metaphor? Before you know it, your flatbread recipe is a sourdough. Something that starts out as something foreign becomes so integrated that it becomes part of the bread. So beware, disciples, of the yeast that is already alive and well in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is what's on Jesus' mind when he meets back with the disciples. What was it, while the disciples were collecting bread and Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, what was it about that conversation that made this so front of mind for him? Well, just like the disciples, their encounter with Jesus revealed something about their hearts and their allegiances and their expectations. So if we go back to the start of our section, we'll examine what it was in this conversation. Um, with your Bibles open, just take a second to scan up and remind yourself what just happened before this. <laughs> if you remember what just happened in this text, the words of the Pharisees and Sadducees should almost knock us off of our seats. He just fed 4,000 families. I think in some Bibles, that section is titled as Jesus provides, performs many miracles. He's doing a lot. Jesus had fed two huge groups of people with miraculous bread. And I wonder if some of them had flashbacks to Moses and God's bread from heaven in the wilderness. Jesus is healing people left, right, and center. And immediately after this, they come up to him and ask him, show us a sign from heaven. You might remember that some of the Pharisees asked Jesus this same question three chapters ago. If you felt like we were repeating some stuff, you, you weren't crazy. <laughs> um, I had the chance to preach the good news of that section a couple months ago. Um, but in summary of what we talked about then, Jesus responded, he responded to their justified, they had some justified cynicism. A lot of people had tried to deceive them. And he said, look, I don't think that there is a sign that I could give you that would be good enough. You've been hurt. You've been deceived too much. The only sign that I will give you and the only one that will help you is if I give myself. Just like Jonah went into the belly of the whale for three days, I will die and be buried for three days and then will rise from the dead. I will save you from your cynicism by being the only safe person to follow because I will die for you. And I will still be stronger than the death that will threaten you. That was his answer three chapters ago. And here we are again. And like the disciples, they're missing the baker for the bread. 
Um, I don't know, I was reminded this week of the 1995 movie Babe. <laughs> you guys remember that movie? <laughs> it's a story about the little pig with the iconic line, that'll do, pig, that'll do. Um, by the way, from experience, that's never a good line to use with someone who hasn't seen the movie. <laughs> In uh, one of the early scenes, the kind old farmer handcrafts a beautiful dollhouse for his granddaughter. And this scene still hurts my heart. Because <laughs> as the little girl tears open her Christmas present, instead of joy and gratitude, she breaks down in tears. I want the house I saw on the television, she says. I think sometimes we might see the Pharisees and Sadducees and think, that's exactly what they're like still wiping the crumbs off their robes. Show us, Jesus, a sign from heaven. Prove to us who you are. Over the last decades, we've kind of learned to roll our eyes at the Pharisees and the Sadducees because we often like to align ourselves with the sinners who have the tender hearts who come and see Jesus. But there's a reason why these characters keep showing up because our hearts are like theirs. Their hearts are like ours. And just like the disciples, they are projecting onto Jesus their expectations of what they think that he is there for. Now, I don't know if you know this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not friends of each other. They have very different visions for the future of Israel and the need to be free from Roman occupation. Uh, the Pharisees, they believed that the reason the people of Israel were suffering under Roman rule was because they were being punished for their sin, for their immorality. The people had stopped listening to God's law, and they needed to repent so that the Messiah would come and rescue them. Do you know that that's why they were so legalistic? That's why they were so strict on their rules. It's not because they were fundamentally stuck up. They wanted the people to love and follow God, and they thought that was the best way to do it. So they studied the law meticulously because morality would lead to God's return to save them. And because Jesus was talking a lot about God's law, they wanted to be sure that he had the authority to say what he was saying. Meanwhile, the Sadducees, they looked at the same problem, the oppression by the Romans, and they came up with a different solution. While the Pharisees, the Pharisees believed in life after death, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. To quote the old song, that's why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> for, for the Sadducees, there wasn't really much beyond this life. The best you could do was to make this one count as a follower of God. They also cared deeply about the future of Israel and the return of God to rescue them. But they were in more of the camp of God helps those who help themselves, which isn't a verse in the Bible, by the way. <laughs> so they decided to do all that they could to join the political class, to participate in high-status government roles, to at least make things better. For them, political strategy would lead to God's favor on the people. Do either of those sound familiar? Aren't these kind of the things that we implicitly believe? Maybe we wouldn't say it, but when we are confronted with the real Jesus, our responses might reveal that we're just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. A lot of our problems in following God stem from our perceptions of who God is. 
I think we tend to have an unbalanced expectation of who God is. So some of us have a view of God that focuses on the reality of his transcendence, his total otherness. We consider his majesty, his holiness, the heavenliness of God. But if we're not remembering all of who God has revealed himself to be, we might think of him as distant. Like the Pharisees, we might believe that to access him, we need to earn our way there. Meanwhile, many of us have a view of God that focuses on his imminence, his total with usness, that he actually might contribute to our day to day. We focus on his presence and his nearness, his care about the here and now. We consider the reality that he participates in the stuff of this world. But if we're not remembering all of who God has revealed himself to be, we might forget that he is also God. He exists beyond time, that there is an eternity. Like the Sadducees, we might miss that God is concerned not just about our present, but our future. All of their preconceptions about Jesus are revealed in their demand for a sign. Because if what they have already seen is not evidence enough for who Jesus is, they're actually just not good at interpreting evidence. Again, looking at the evidence they have, if that's not enough, they're just bad at looking at evidence. And that's what Jesus says in his response, right? He makes a play on words. Um, I, I, you may have noticed that when I was reading the passage. Heaven and skies, uh, in many languages, even in English, used to kind of just be the same word, but they've split a little bit. They're like, show us a sign from the heavens. And he's like, you know how to interpret the heavens. You're really good weather forecasters. When the, the sun's red, you're like, ah, it's going to be such and such. But they're unable to see the evidence because it doesn't correlate to what they're expecting. It doesn't match what they want from God, and their hearts are hungering not for God, but for something else. The Pharisees were unable to interpret the times because they weren't actually hungry for God. They were hungry for their traditions. And the Sadducees weren't actually hungry for God. They were hungry for their political power. And Jesus was concerned that some of that yeast was beginning to take hold in the disciples. They were perhaps on the verge of not being hungry for God, but being hungry for the bread, for the miracles for the good things that Jesus provided. You have little trust. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember? How is it that you don't understand? I was not talking to you about the bread, but be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood. He was not telling them to guard against the yeast and bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, in the story of Matthew, this marks an important transition point in the story of Jesus' life. In the next session, the disciples start to slowly and finally grasp who Jesus is, the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And this realization, I think, is only possible when the disciples recognize honestly both what they were hoping for Jesus to be and who he really is. This place in the story marks the turning point when Jesus starts moving toward the cross, a plan that fits with nobody's expectations. 
end seems to provide nothing to anyone's benefit. What does the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees do? Well, when it's unrecognized, undealt with, and unacknowledged, the crowds who are hungry for the bread and not for the baker start to turn on Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are about tradition and political power, begin to turn on Jesus. Up until now, it seemed like Jesus would do everything that they wanted for him. But slowly, it began to be clear that he was not there to satisfy their misaligned appetites. He was there to satisfy their actual hunger. He was there to satisfy their actual need for God. Jesus' response to us is always to draw us to satisfy our hunger in him. Because Jesus is not trying to prove himself, but give himself. Jesus is not trying to feed his disciples, but fill them with himself. The disciples' response reveals that they think Jesus is here to provide bread. And ironically, he is there to provide bread. But what the disciples miss is that Jesus is the bread. The bread he is providing is his very self. The yeast of doubt and skepticism and a need for God to fit within their expectations and needs is what transforms the crowds from happily eating and being healed by Jesus to wanting him dead. Because for them, it's not about Jesus. It's about what he can do for them. And brothers and sisters, that yeast is alive and well. As a minister to young adults, and as a young adult myself, maybe, <laughs> I, have, I have seen this yeast develop in the lives of so many in my generation, and I know it is not exclusive to my generation. It starts innocently, even righteously. Normally, it starts when we encounter something in the way we've read the Bible or in the traditions of the church that make us uncomfortable, and we decide to think deeply about it. Consider it. Did we get this right? Or might this need to be something that God is seeking to change in us? And to be clear, this is what the people of God have always been paying attention to. Always reforming is the phrase. But then there's a subtle shift. It's almost as undetectable as yeast. While we have our highlighter out, we start to see things that make us uncomfortable everywhere. Because God's different than us. Well, I mean, that seems archaic. That doesn't seem like it would help my life. I could never serve a God like that. And let me be clear. I'm not opposed to church self-critique. I'm not opposed to even everything about deconstruction. But let's be aware of the yeast. I've seen this happen countless times. And the narrative always ends exactly the same. Slowly but surely, our expectations of what we would want in a God get confronted with the actual Jesus. We want what he has to give us, but really, if we're honest with ourselves, who gives it to us is less of our concern. And eventually, God becomes less and less God, and inevitably, the yeast causes us to crucify Jesus. From 
maybe a, an evangelical Jesus to a, a progressive Jesus to maybe a postmodern concept of Jesus to a general spirituality, eventually to nothing at all. Jesus is crucified for not being the kind of God that we would make if we were in charge. And if we view Jesus only with a lens of what we can get from him, how he can make me feel, it always results in killing him. Because it was never about Jesus. But Jesus still loves us way too much. <laughs> he let them crucify him. Because our response to the person of Jesus reveals what our hearts are actually after. And so even at the cross, it showed the people what their hearts were actually after. It was only in the moment of his death on the cross that the centurion looked up and finally realized, this was my response to Jesus. This was what my heart was about. Truly, this was the Son of God. God knows that we are deceived in our appetites for things that won't satisfy us. And he knows that we need to realize that our hunger is for him. And if it takes his death, his burial, and his resurrection to show us that, he will go to that length to rescue us. This is the second Sunday of Lent. And some of you are now 11 days into some kind of fast. You're intentionally allowing yourself to go hungry from what you think you need to pay attention to your real hunger for God. That's what Lent is all about. Cultivating a hunger for God as we approach the Easter moment that shows us our actual need for Him. Part of our Lenten practice this year is to participate in the Lord's table every week, as we did earlier. It's no small thing friends, that Jesus invited us to eat of himself as part of what it means to be the church. But don't miss the baker for the bread. We read from 1 Corinthians 11, that text, I received from the Lord that which I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. It continues later on this passage with a warning to not do this in an unworthy manner. Don't come to the communion table with ulterior motives, because it's toxic yeast to your soul. It's no surprise that Paul says that when we take communion in that way, we're guilty of his death, because that yeast always leads to putting Jesus to death. The attitude of what I can get from Jesus is precisely the thing that will lead us to kill him. But brothers and sisters, by God's grace, every Sunday during this season, every week before you come to receive communion, you actually get the opportunity to ask yourself, what am I hungry for? That's part of the invitation in coming to the Lord's table. What am I hungry for? Am I hungry only for the desire to relieve a, a guilty conscience? Am I just literally hungry? And I think this might be a tasty snack. Am I hungry for acceptance? Am I going forward just so that I'm not the only one who doesn't go forward? Am I hungry to try and win God's favor? Or am I hungry 
for the one who this represents? Am I hungry for what I actually need? Am I hungry for Jesus? Do I realize that I need him more than anything else? Do I trust him to be God in my life, even when I disagree with what he'd ask of me, even when he doesn't do what I'd expect of him? When you meet Jesus, what does your response to him reveal about your appetites? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, as we continue in worship of you, um, responding through song, Lord, show us yourself. And in showing us yourself, would you reveal to us what we might actually be hungry for? I thank you that when we realize that your response is not anger, but yourself. Lord, mold us, shape us, form us. Help us to recognize that our souls are hungry for you and your very self, the one that you have so generously given to us. Pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.